Um, If you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to be in verse uh, 13 is where we're going to start this sucker out. And um, uh, this is, we've been looking at the story of Jesus as told by John the Apostle. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, four stories of Jesus, people telling the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John has his own unique take on the story of Jesus. And what we want to do today is look at a story that actually, um, a a, a sort of story that we're going to see in all of the Gospels, but John has his own particular way of looking at it. Let's take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. All right. Now, if you've been tracking Jesus for any amount of time, you're like, what in the world is going on? Like, this isn't like Jesus coming on a leper and he's like, be healed. Like, he's not, like, the the meek, mild Jesus, this is not him. Like, this is the Jesus who makes a weapon, this is the Jesus who, who is, who is overturning, it's not the desperate housewives, right? But anybody overturning tables? Like, there's, it's a thing, I think. I don't know. I just hear about these things. I don't know what's going on. Who's up here? Um, but he's overturning tables. Like, we, <laughs> whenever we have, a, we have a little joke in our family that whenever someone's losing a game, we always imagine them standing up and flipping the table, right? Does anybody have that in their household? You got very competitive people. But we, we're here, we, we, Jesus is getting, this is a, a, an account of Jesus really getting worked up, that Jesus is getting legitimately angry, that Jesus is getting physical. Like if somebody walked out in between, uh, at the beginning of the service, and there's like donuts out there, and, and we're like, I'm sick of this, <laughs> you know, like it would be a thing, wouldn't it? Like we would walk in here and go like, did you see so-and-so freak out out there? Like, that's what's going on here. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this in light of John as this unique story of Jesus. I want to just look at this episode and ask, what is John trying to do? What is he trying to say about Jesus by remembering this event, this very memorable event? But what is he trying to do here? All right, you guys with me today? All right, I'm going to try. I'm going to... Actually, I'm not going to try not to geek out. I'm just going to go full geek mode on you today. And we're just going to, we're going to do this. And I'm going to go so geek mode that I can't even go further geek mode. I'm going to, I'm going to do a podcast this week on some things that just didn't make it in. All right. So it's full geek mode today, but here's the deal. All right. So in order to understand what Jesus is doing, we've got to understand the temple. And if you guys have been believers for any amount of time and you've read your Bibles, you understand that the temple in Jerusalem is a significant place. It's not always there in Scripture, and it has a bit of a history, but one of the things we have to understand is that the temple was understood as what we would call a holy place. 
Now, in, in, our, in our kind of Protestant Christian tradition, we don't have a real, a lot of doctrine about that certain places are particularly holy. Like, for example, um, when, when we go to Israel, we don't go so we can, like, touch a particular rock, although we can, and you go to the, to the place where to the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, you can crawl under the altar, put your hand down onto, there's an altar over the rock, you can put your hand in this really dark hole, and you can reach down and you can touch the rock on which Jesus was crucified. And it probably is the exact rock that Jesus was crucified on. And I've, I've actually done it a couple of times. You go, you crawl under, you reach in. I know, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, right? But this idea, we don't, we don't have this idea that touching the rock brings any particular sense of access to God, right? Like as Protestants, we, 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 we don't have this kind of idea of holy places. But as we look into the first century, we look at Jewish ideas and Jewish ideas about accessing God, the understanding was that there were particular places, geographical locations, on which there was a particular thinness. In the, in the Irish tradition, they talk about thin places, a thinness between our world and the heavenly places. And there was this understanding that God was in the heavenly places and there's all these agents of God, the angels and whatnot, and they're all in the heavenly places, but they all access earth at a particular point. Here's the earth down here, and that at a particular point, these things come together. And the book of Hebrews is a really interesting book about this because it talks about all these kind of people and places and methods of coming to God. So like Moses and the prophets and the temple, these are all the places, all the things, all the institutions that give you access to God. It was this idea that you would have these places with which they were the doorway into the heavenly realms. And the understanding in Jewish thought was that the temple was a place like that, that if you wanted to have access to heaven, to the heavenly realms, you went to the place where the gate of heaven was. And we, we talked about this, this story, that story in Genesis about Jacob, and he lays down one night and he has this dream where he sees angels ascending and descending, and he believes, I found the place where heaven and earth meet, right? And so this idea that certain locations had a holiness about them, a holiness and access to God, that was the idea with the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was thought to be one of those, if not one of those special places, the special place. If you wanted to have access to God's, the land, God's land, you would go to Israel. If you wanted to have access to God's city, you would go to Jerusalem. But if you wanted to have access to God himself, you would go to the temple. The temple was the place where you would go so you could have access. You could get as close as possible to God. That was the understanding from the Old Testament. That was the understanding in the Jewish mindset. That was the understanding in which Jesus comes into this world. And so the temple had this really interesting history. The temple, this idea of access to God had this really interesting history. The presence of God would be in the Ark of the Covenant. You guys remember in the Well of Souls, Indiana Jones, the bull whip, you know, throw me the idol, I throw you the whip. You guys remember this story? Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, 
Right. So the Ark of the Covenant was, was originally the place you would put the Ten Commandments in there, the rod of, of Aaron was in, or the, uh, yeah, the, the staff of Aaron was in there. And it was on there, and on the, on the top of that, the mercy seat, that's where the high priest once a year would go in and commune with God, talk to God through the window, essentially, of the Ark of the Covenant. And the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle back in Exodus. The Ark eventually finds a, a resting place in Shiloh, and then in Kiriath Urim, we were there, right? Kiriath Urim, anybody? I see you, Mary Beth. We were there in 1 Samuel. And then the Ark eventually comes to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel by the request of David. David commissions at the end of 2 Samuel the site on which the temple would be built. The very last verses in the book of, of 2 Samuel is David commissioning. This is where he has this dream. He sees the angel of the Lord, and he goes up to this, uh, this, uh, the winnowing place, right? And he says, I, I want to buy this. I want to purchase this for the, for the ark, and then his son, or for the, the temple. His son Solomon builds the temple. They bring the ark into that temple. This is in 1 Kings. And by the end of 2 Kings, the temple is destroyed. That's the first temple. Under Persian rule, people come back. Zerubbabel comes back. He rebuilds the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah do their thing. That's the second temple. And that's around 500 B.C., 589 B.C. But by the time of the first century B.C., you have a Jewish king that comes to power, Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is not a great king. He's actually kind of a crazy dude. Um, but one of the things that he is great at is he's great at building. Right? Those of you who went to Israel... We know, we saw a lot of things that Herod built. And one of the things that Herod builds is he builds, he actually renovates the second temple. He renovates the building and the temple complex, he expands. He actually takes the temple complex and he makes it, he grows it by another half. He increases it by 50%. So what you have, essentially, on the Temple Mount is we're going to, and we're going to see this in just a second, um, is we have an expansion of the Temple Mount, which makes the Temple Mount a 35-acre complex. All right, show the pictures. Let's show some pictures. Because if we're going to geek out, we've got to see some pictures. All right. All right. This is our group. This is our group that went to Israel. We went with another church, Village uh, Bible Church in Garden Grove. Right behind us is the, um, what am I pointing at here? Ah, there we go. That is what we call the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim uh, building that is on the site of what was traditionally the Temple Mount. Okay? So this is, and this is all to show just a little bit of the size of this. You can see these are doorways in the back right over Maurice's head. Um, and then here we are, and uh, so you can see just the size of this complex around. That's the walls, the retaining walls, the way, uh, the way Herod expanded this is he built these huge retaining walls, and he expanded the ground on which this would all go. Let's go to the second slide. So this is us standing with facing west um, with the east at our back. Um, this is a, an archway through which um, right behind us is the eastern gate, the golden gate, and we're looking up at the Dome of the Rock. You can see just this is going to get smaller and smaller as we keep moving away. Um, keep going, next slide. So here we have Dome of the Rock also, and you can see we're now on the southern side of this, and you can just see just how large this whole complex is. Go to the last slide here. So this is an overview 
of the actual Temple Mount. So here's the Dome of the Rock. Remember we were standing like right here and we took a picture and we could see that and how small it looked behind us? Well, now we're sitting there. Uh, we can see just how large this area is. We're talking about, as we move on here, these walls around here, they are the walls around a 35-acre complex. The temple probably sat here facing this direction to the east. This is the Golden Gate, and we're essentially above the Mount of Olives. So when we understand what Jesus does here, one of the things we need to understand is that this is, Jesus shows up, Herod begins this renovation, hold it up there for just a second, Herod begins this, renova res uh, this renovation around 20 BC, 20 BC. Je this is about 15 to 20 years before Jesus is born. When this episode in the gospel happens, this is, it's probably about 27, 26 or 27 AD, so 46 years later. But this expansion happens essentially during the generation of Jesus' era. It's the largest the temple gets. Now, the great irony is that they finish building the temple in about 64 AD, and then it's destroyed in 70 AD again. So a little bit going on here, and you could, maybe John has something to say about that, but that's a little bit of what we're talking about. So the idea is, on, in the center of that, imagine a temple, and in that temple you'd have these various layers. You'd have the, out, the court of the Gentiles, which is the big court, and then you'd have the court that you can go in, where Jewish, all Jewish people could go in, and then all the Jewish men could go one step further, and then the priests could go one step further. And so your access to God was really about a lot of things. It was about your ethnicity, you could get certain, you could get close. It was about your pedigree. Did you have the right bloodline? It was about your gender. It was about your wholeness. Like if you were a, a Jewish male, you could make it in, but not if you had some defect on you. Like if you were disabled or you, you couldn't get in. So there were all these like layers of how you could access God. You could actually get to God. And so here comes Jesus into this episode. And this idea here, Let's keep this up here for a second. Um, when we think about this episode, a couple things that we also know historically, and this is going to give us a little bit of, of idea about what's going on. So during the time of the Passover, when Passover would take place, this whole area, this whole temple courtyard would swell with pilgrims that were coming from all over the Roman Empire that were Jewish, and they would be coming to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover feast and festival. And there were a couple things that you did at the Passover feast or festival. One is that you had to buy a lamb, right, because you had the Passover lamb, but you would also probably offer sacrifice for your own family. You would also pay the temple tax. Now, in order to do that, if you were coming from, like, Arabia, you couldn't bring your own goat with you, right? Like, you know, you couldn't, like, walk a goat next to a camel or, like, bring them up. It's not like today where you had, like, little doggy strollers that you could just, I'm taking my sacrificial animal to. Nobody has doggy strollers in here? See them around? Okay, you get the idea, okay? So this idea that you can't, you can't really take your own animal. So if I'm coming from a long way, let's say I'm coming from Turkey, right? And I'm coming down to the south. I can't take, but I can bring some coinage. I can bring some money. I can bring something to trade so that when I get there, I can purchase an animal. Now, before Herod, before Herod, all of the animal purchasing, all of the animal purchasing was done somewhere here. There we go. All of the animal purchasing was done down here. This is the Kidron Valley. And if you keep going further down, 
is the Mount of Olives and the slope of the Mount of Olives going up. And that's where all of the animal selling, buying and selling was done. All of that happened outside of those walls. That was where if you needed a, a ca- if you needed cattle or an ox to offer sacrifice, you bought it out there. If you needed a sheep or a goat, you would buy it out there. You would purchase it out there. If you needed pigeons, you would purchase it out there. And if you were poor, pigeons were all you could afford. And the book of Exodus and Leviticus actually gives you, it was like, hey, if you have this going on, you can sacrifice an oxen. But if you can't afford that, you can do two pigeons. There were, there were, always, there were always provisions for the poor in the Torah. Okay? But all that was going on outside in the Kidron Valley, out, outside on the Mount of Olives. Historically speaking, after Herod does this expansion, there's a high priest whose name is Caiaphas. And he's like, hey, we got all this room. We got all this new space. We got all this new space and like, hey, look, it's way more convenient for people, for us to have all the sacrifices here. It, and, and plus, plus, for the high priest, by the time of Herod, in order to be the high priest, you had to bid on the high priesthood. Like everything was becoming more and more corrupt. That if you wanted to be high priest, you'd say, okay, Herod, I will pay you this amount of money so that I can be the high priest. So if you bid high, you had to make that up in revenue. And there's temple tax, but there's also like, hey, what if we worked it out so that like only the official vendors could get in here? What if we worked it out if it was kind of like a pay-to-play kind of a thing? If you want to do business in the temple, in the good spot, the, the really strategic spot, then, you know, how about a little something, something? And Caiaphas was the one who started this. And all of this happens, all of this happens when Jesus is just a kid. So we wonder then, when Jesus is an adult, what Jesus thinks about this. By the way, we might think Jesus is the hero here. Look, when Caiaphas does this, everybody hates Caiaphas. Everybody thinks he's a jerk and that, he is, that he's corrupt. But how else are we going to access God? Everybody hates Caiaphas. Everybody thinks he is, he, they're not on board with this, but how, how do we access God? How do we do this if Herod's not listening to us? How do we do this if this is the high priest that's been appointed? We have to get on board with this. And we wonder what Jesus thinks. Look at 2.13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this event, probably, according to John, happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and all the other gospels, it happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. And so there's a little bit, that's what I'm going to do the podcast on, because it's kind of an interesting question about, is this one event or are there two events? Two temple cleansings, essentially. Are there two or are there one? Just for the sake of, I'll give you the cliff notes on my particular position. I think that John is essentially a supplemental gospel. It's intentionally supplemental. John knows that he knows what Mark says and what Luke says and what Matthew says, and, but he writes to add things in. I think he adds a second event. And this one is Jesus early in his ministry early in his ministry. And so Jesus comes as a relatively unknown, as a relatively unknown person to the Temple Mount. And as he walks up, he's walking over the Mount of Olives and he's looking around, he's like, where are all the cattle people? Where are the sheep people? Where are the money changers? I gotta pay the temple tax. Where am I gonna, where am I gonna change my money? 
And as he walks into the temple court, he sees all this stuff. 2.14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. People are going to come. It's Passover. So the, Josephus says that the size of the city, the population of the city, swells by almost a million people during this time. People are coming from all over, and they're coming with all their currencies, Persian, Turkish, that's not Turkey at the time, but you get the idea, up in the, the Hittite realm, Arabia, Egyptian, all these different coinage, and they have to pay it in a certain type of coinage. And so they have to change their money. So all this, it's like, hey, one-stop shopping right here. Just come on in. Come on in to the temple courtyard. And some people might be saying, this is great, man. I don't have to walk this animal that far. Some people might be saying, this is great. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are like, what's going on? A couple of things about this event. Each of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have an account of this. And as we noted that, this is the last public event of Jesus' life before he's dead. In other words, by doing this, Jesus is sealing his fate at the end of his ministry. But on this occasion, Jesus comes in as a relatively unknown person. See, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he's, had, he's gathered crowds of 5,000, 3,000 people. This event, Jesus has a handful of disciples, and he's turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, but still nobody really knows he did it. So he's coming in as a relative unknown at the beginning of his ministry. There's a few differences between John's account and, um, and uh, the other gospel accounts. Um, John adds in um, cattle and sheep. Um, he also is the only gospel that records Jesus making a whip. The only gospel that says that he makes a whip of cords. There's different ideas about what the whip is, whether it's a whip of ropes. Um, it's an impromptu, whatever it is, you can't bring weapons. You still can't do this today. Um, you can't bring weapons onto the temple mount. And so Jesus gets there, and he basically is like, he looks around, and he starts making this whip, this kind of lashing thing of cords, and then he starts shooing animals out with it. So there's a lot of questions about whether Jesus is whipping people or animals. No animals were harmed in this temple cleansing, right? He, so he's doing all of this, and uh, the most significant difference is, again, the, the timing of the event. And all those questions, we're gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll do an In the Weeds podcast so you can all um, benefit from that if you, if you choose to. But um, essentially what John is recording is the first public act of Jesus. And this is significant. If we want to understand who does John think Jesus is, and we've already had all kinds of clues leading up to this, but this is going to be Jesus' first public event. The, the miracle at the wedding of Cana was secret. Nobody knew. Only his disciples and the servants who filled the water jars, right? So this is going to be his first, his coming out, his first public event. And I got news for you. It did not go well for Jesus. And not because he got, he was crucified at the end. It was that he was dismissed at the end. Look at the, look at the story again. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, money changers sitting there. He made a whip of cords. He drove them out all of, the temp, of all the temple with the sheep and the auction. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturning their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Notice that he didn't, like he drives everybody out, but like the pigeons he's like super careful with. 
because the pigeons are for the poor. Right? And Jesus knows until he makes his own sacrifice, people are going to need those pigeons. So he takes a pigeon, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right. When he says, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So the ESV says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The NIV says, do not make my father's house into a marketplace. In Greek, there's a play on words that's going on. And I'm going to just, this is the translation that I think helps that play on words. It says, do not make the house of my father a house of merchandise. Do not make the house of my father a house of merchandise. So if we look at the other gospels, in the other gospels what Jesus says, Jesus seems to take an issue with the corruption of the temple in the later event, at the end of his life, he drives out the animals, turns over the tables and the money changers, and he says this, he quotes two passages, he says, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a cave of robbers. So it seems like Jesus is, is upset with, look, this is supposed to be prayer, but you're corrupt and you're, you're like extorting people. It's a cave of extortionists or a den of thieves if you've got the, the King James, right? But here, here he seems to be taking issue with simply the presence of the sellers. That he's saying that the temple court, that large court, the courtyard of the Gentiles, this is not supposed to be a place of commerce. A place of merchandise, like buy this sheep with the official temple signature insignia stamped on it. Like, this is not the place for that. And it seems like he's even going further than that. Look at 2.18. This is where we find out that this is why it doesn't go well. Like, as the readers, see, as the readers, as the readers of this, John's like, okay, readers, you get a special seat. You know what's going on. If you're the reader, you get to know what's going on. But I'm, I'm going to bring you behind the curtain. But now we're going to let this play out. And other people are not going to know what's happening here. And he says this in 2.18, so the Jews, the Jewish leaders, okay, they come out and they're like, okay, what sign do you show for doing us these things? Notice, notice this, like the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're, they're actually not stoked on what Caiaphas is doing. So they're not like, they're not like, hey, what are you doing? Here? What are you doing? They're like, okay, you're doing this, but like what sign do you, like you're doing this prophetic thing? And we're not totally against it, but like, what, what sign do you show to show that you've, you've got the clout to do this? And Jesus says, Jesus says something that's a little cryptic. He says, he says, essentially, you will destroy this temple. He doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple. He says, you'll destroy the temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. You will destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What the Jews say to essentially win the argument and drop the mic is this. 
Herod's been building this sucker for 46 years. Look at this stone over here. This stone, it weighs about as much as a 747. I, they, don't, they don't know what a 747 is, but, but we do, and we've seen the stones. If you go there today, you can see these huge stones that are like 40 feet long and 5 feet wide, and they're these huge monolithic stones at the base, and they've got, they've got dozens of them that they've pulled up. Like, these are huge stones, destroy it, and, and in three days I will rebuild it. It's taken 46 years to this point to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up? You're going to, like, rebuild it in three days? And in the event itself, in the, in the moment of the event, that's like the, the Jewish leaders are like, drop the mic, we're done with you. You're an idiot. Jesus loses here. On this first step to the temple, Jesus loses, and they're like, they're dismissive of him. There's no other comeback of Jesus, is there? There's no other recorded comeback. He's not like, well, you know, and then he he says something clever, and it really knocks everybody down. No, they've said what they need to say, and they dismiss him. But we as the readers, John is like, hey, but you guys know better, don't you? You all know better. You know that he wasn't talking about that big 747-sized stone He was talking about his body. He was thinking ahead. And the interesting thing about this whole account is John John is retelling it with memory. And look at even what he says. Look at what he says in John 2.17. After he does it, his disciples, after the fact, remember Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. They don't remember it in the moment. But after Jesus suffers and dies, they remember Oh, the zeal for his house has consumed him. Psalm 69, 9, he was fulfilling that. We saw his zeal for his father's house, and it got him killed. And they remember it. And then in John 2, 22, after the fact, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. In the moment, Jesus is being dismissed. It's taken 46 years to move these stones around. You can't do it. Get out of here. He's dismissed. But his disciples then, after the fact, they remember, oh, no, 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 Jesus is talking about his body. And we as the readers are like, we don't even have to wait that long. We as the readers, we're let in. We're let in. We see the irony right up front. And we understand this. I mean, think, think about this. The first public act that John records of Jesus is Jesus saying, I am the new temple. He says it cryptically in the moment, but after the fact they remember that he's like, he's not talking about the temple, the, the, the structure, he's talking about his body. Because now, as John's retelling this, he's like, hey, remember in the prologue when I said the word became, like the word was with God, and the word was God in the beginning, in the beginning there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, that God's very presence, that God, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Where do we need to go to see God's presence? It's not the temple. To have access to God, we don't go through the temple. John has already let us in on the secret. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. 
When he calls Nathaniel, he says, hey, Nathaniel, you think it's awesome that I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. John has already let us in on this little secret to say, look, Jesus is the place where you meet God. It's not the temple. Jesus is making the temple obsolete. I think it's so interesting that Jesus is saying all the buyers and sellers of, of, of animals, I mean, you could imagine he's driving these people out and you might be thinking that he's saying to himself, hey, the only person here that's paying for a sacrifice is me. I will make the payment. I will pay. Jesus is the means of access to God, and John is not even two chapters in, and he's like, Jesus is the new temple. He's going to hammer this point in in chapter three when he meets the woman at the well, right? Because they're like, should we worship? She's like, should we worship here on, on Mount Gerizim, or should we worship in Jerusalem like you Jews? And Jesus says what? Look, uh, look, he says woman, like in a nice way. A time is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will neither worship here or there, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. You want access to the Father, you want true worship, it goes through me. And later on in chapter 14, he's going to say, look, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through the temple. No, he doesn't say that. No one comes to the Father but through me. John, John, I think, is, is, I think, I think John the Baptist, who offers forgiveness outside of the temple, I think Jesus, I think these are all saying they're leading essentially anti-temple movements. They're saying there is, there is new access to God and it is through Jesus. Jesus is the way. And John is bringing us in, into this and he's saying, look, just like the water purification jars at the wedding are going to be ruined by messianic wine, Remember, what a great way to ruin purification jars is with the best wine in the world, right? And what Jesus is saying here, what John is saying is that the temple is going to be ruined by Jesus offering a new and better way. And what we're going to see in the next chapter, we're going to see a teacher of Israel who doesn't understand this, that even the teachers of Israel are going to have to recalibrate on this. John is showing that the word become flesh and dwelling among us is recalibrating everything. Access to God is not in a place. I love this building. I love this building. But if this building were torn down, we'd still have access to God. Because access to God is not because you sit in this pew. It's not even that you have this Bible. If you didn't have this Bible, you would still have access to God. You have access to God by means of your faith in Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus' work on the cross and the Spirit's work in your life, those two, those two are in the, what their job is, is to bring you to the Father. And he says, I'm going to make a new, a fresh and new way, as the book of Hebrews says, through a new and living way, that, that is going to make you confident to enter the holy places. 
confident to enter the holy places. And the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in your heart so that you understand the love of God. It's going to be poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit. No building, no place, no nothing. It is because Jesus has done his work and the Spirit is doing his work in your life that you are being brought to the Father. It's, it, this is not a good theological language, but two-thirds of the Trinity are meant to bring you back to the Father. That's the work of the Son and the Spirit. And the Gospel of John is going to make this clear. We do not need to make a pilgrimage. Our trip to Israel was not a pilgrimage. It was a study tour, which is way different, okay? Um, Because we sleep less and we do a lot of walking, okay? But we go, we go because we want to understand, we want to understand the Word, we want to understand the Bible, not because we think it gets us closer to God, you could be just as close to God. I was closer, I was just as close to God as a 14-year-old sitting on my bed asking God to forgive me of my sin. Saying, Jesus, come into my life. I want you. He, he is he's right here. He's right there. He's present. He has made a way. And John's like, look, the first, the first public thing that I'm going to record Jesus doing is something that nobody understands, but you get to understand what it is. You get the upfront seats. You get to know what's behind the curtain. They don't know, but you do. And Jesus later on will say, or John will say, look, he does signs. He does plenty of signs, and people believe in him based on the signs, but he's not going to entrust himself to them because their faith, their faith, it's not right now, that's not, that's not working He knows what's in the heart of people, and later on, later on he's going to entrust himself, and by the end, he doesn't trust himself to his disciples. He entrusts himself to those who have faith in him. But the signs, the faith based on signs, as we get in chapter, into verse 23, or 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He knew himself what was in man. So what does this mean for us? For, well, for one, look. If you feel distance between you and God, you feel like, I don't think God hears me. Look, I just want to say this. You want to be confident that God hears your prayer, put your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus says, look, if you put your faith in me, all of the benefits of my sacrifice, all of the benefits of the indwelling spirit, you are going to be indwelt filled with the Spirit. You're going to have access to the Father. The Spirit, even if you don't know what to pray, the Spirit will intercede on your behalf with groanings that are too deep for words. You have access. You have access through faith in Jesus. But it also means something, I think, for us as a church, and that's this. You know, what if we like, we're like, hey, you know, our official translation of the Bible is an ESV. And we said, and, and look, we're selling out in the lobby ESVs with the Taft logo on them. And like when you come in next week, all you need to do is take your Bible and hold it up so we can see your logo. And then you can come in and we'll give you the seat of your choice. Right? Which is always the back row because you got to get here early to get in the back row. But if you just come in with whatever Bible, like we'll like we'll send you up to the we'll send you upstairs or or we'll say you know you'll get the leftovers or what you get the idea like like and I I know that sounds that sounds like um, well it sounds ludicrous doesn't it like we would never do that but are there people that if they showed up here that we'd be like I don't know 
I don't know if they belong here. I hope not. No, and I hope not. I hope not. But it does invite us to take a little stock, doesn't it? Like, do we ever deny access to God based on something that someone has done or said or looks like or voted for? How could they be a Christian and insert whatever your horrible thing is right here? Like, look, I, I think we, we need to be careful about how we give or deny access to God in our community. Now, I'm not saying that, that anything goes, right, okay? But I, I do think that the idea of, like, when, when Jesus is saying, look, this, all of this stuff, all of this layering of, like, well, you can get here, and the, the women can get here, and the men can get here, but the men who have default defects here, and, like, all this, and Gentiles are here, and priests get to go here, like, there's, there's something going on here that Jesus says, nope, no more. Male, female, doesn't matter how whole you are as a person. Jesus says, I want you. Doesn't matter how much shame you've had, I want you. Jesus is saying, you've got to be careful about who you allow access to God. So much of what Jesus did was just taking those things out of the way taking those things out. It's one of the reasons why I really love our value of removing distractions, calling attention to God. Whatever we do, we, whatever might distract, let's take it out of the way and let's call attention to God. Any obstacle. And I want to remove as many obstacles as possible for people to either come into this community, to come into these doors, to come in and hear the gospel. We have to be careful about how we might implicitly or even explicitly being denying access to God. Or, I think on the other hand, too, the issue of just profiteering on the gospel. I don't think that every industry in the evangelical world is great. I think that there can be some profiteering. Like, and this is somebody, this is somebody who makes a living as a pastor, and I'm like, hey, i got to be careful about what I do here. I got to be careful about how I represent God. I got to be careful about, like, if, people who make money on the gospel or on ministry, we, there, there's a special sense of care that has to be taken. And as a church that has a building, we have to keep the lights on. We have, and you guys, give, you guys give generously, but we have to treat, look, this is sacrificial giving. We have to be accountable. We have to, we have to show why this is happening. We can't be profiteering on this sort of thing. Any merchandise, like we have these awesome mugs. Check it out, everybody, right? Okay, but look, we, we don't make you buy them. If you're a visitor, you get one for free. Like, we, we, this is something that we're not, you know, we're not making a ton of money or we're not making any money on this, right? So the idea is like, and I think we need, to be, we need to pay attention to this. It's like worship brought to you by Chevy. You know, like, <laughs> and I'm, I make a joke about that, but that happens, So anyway, I, I, don't know what all, I don't know what the answers are. I don't even know what the line is. But I do know it's a discussion that we always need to have in the forefront of our minds. And we might land in different places on this, but I do want us to have that discussion in our minds. You guys with me on this? 
I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm the only person who sees this kind of stuff, and I'm just talking to myself, but that's just, that's the way I, I feel about this. Like, vigilance, everybody. If Jesus showed up here, what would he be like? I need to turn that table over. Because I feel like, look, if Jesus showed up here, he'd probably be like, look, I got some things to say. Like, we, we can't, we're not going <laughs> to, we, we can't, like, imagine, oh, we're the only people Jesus wouldn't have anything negative to say to, Right? Right, like if, if Jesus shows up, then we would say, teach us, Jesus, teach us, help us. And why would we not have that posture now? We use a story like this just to say, vigilant, vigilant. We need to stay vigilant. All right, let's pray, let's pray, come on. Father, we, we come, first of all, Father, we come just to, just to, confess that if we were around Jesus, we might not have understood everything. And so we come at this point in history with a a great gospel to teach us, and we come humbly, and we say, teach us. Help us. Help us to understand. We also come saying, Would you just give us Jesus? We'll take Jesus. We don't want a temple. We don't want sacrifices. And even as the song says, we're not coming for blessing. We we just want Jesus. Would you teach us? And would you keep us vigilant about the power of your grace in this world? your ability to provide resources wherever they're needed, that we're not marketing Jesus, we're preaching Jesus. We're not profiteering off of this message. Help us, Father. We love you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.